Hello, and welcome to the Vote Her podcast, because when you vote, great things can happen. I'm Mara Davis, TV and radio host, talent booker, and absolutely thrilled that Brittany is finally free. I'm Jen Jordan, a lawyer, mom, lover of Frenchies, and uh, yeah, go Brittany. Lawyers are hot, Jen. I mean, that's what I've been trying to tell you, Mara. I, I, I can't. <laughs> I keep messaging Jen because there's been so many lawyers in the news and different things with like legal and legal questions. And I'm like, man, lawyers, just get it done. Well, it's because there's it's just mayhem right now. You know, you have all these state legislators passing all these laws that are like, what does that do and what does that mean? So, yeah, they're really important right now. It is. It is important. We're excited about Brittany. We're going to have to you're going to have to explain to all of us about conservatorship law. But I've watched a lot of documentaries. You may can do a better job than me. (laughs) So I do feel like a Brittany expert. But anyway, we're really happy that she's free. Let's get to Atlanta and what's happening here. The Atlanta mayoral race is like creeping up on all of us. Are people excited? Are they fired up? I mean, this is coming up next month. I can't believe it. I'm not sure. I have not seen many signs. I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. I don't even see that many ads. So I do wonder. There have been a lot of forums and there have been some, you know, some polls released by various camps. But I just don't have a sense of what's going on. Who do you think are the front runners? Probably uh, Kasim and uh, Felicia okay. Moore. That's my Okay, guess. okay. And we're going to talk to Felicia Moore. We were in contact with her team, and, you know, we're eventually going to get that done. But we have a, we, since we're hot on lawyers, we've got a, you know, lawyers on fire coming up uh, <laughs> in, in a few. <laughs> so, all right, you know, the mayor's race, it seems like there's a, a, I guess I live in the city of Atlanta, so I have seen the signs and I have seen more, more stuff on that. Well, I think in various areas, It's probably, I mean, I think in more densely populated areas, you see more signs. It kind of just depends on where you live and if people are excited or they're not. I mean, you know, it's interesting because, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. What do you, what do you think? What are you hearing? No, I am literally scratching my head on this one because from what I have, the little I know about politics by just being an enthusiast is that name recognition goes a really long way. And people know Kasim Reed because he was the mayor before. And I've been seeing the most ads for him, but I've, you know, I've been seeing gay out there and I've been seeing more and I've been seeing, you know, some of them on Twitter, but it does, it just, I think you're sort of right. I, I don't feel like... There's that much of a, you know, fervor out there. Yeah. In in past elections, you could almost feel like one candidate kind of kind of rising or right. at least a couple that are really popping. Right. That people are really gravitating toward. And I'm just not getting that sense. Maybe it's COVID. You know, we're just not around folks as much. Maybe. Maybe. Um, you know what I'm hearing more of? I'm hearing more of Buckhead Cityhood. I mean, that seems to be what is in the news. A lot of op-eds about that. A lot of national news about that. But what's interesting is that the two are really inextricably linked. This is what I don't understand about the Buckhead City thing is that, okay, government is not working, you know, right now in the city of Atlanta. It doesn't feel like it is doing its job for folks. Okay, so what do you do? Change it, right? And we've got this great opportunity in front of us where we literally are going to to change who's at 
you know, leading City Hall, the mayor, and almost everybody. I mean, the, the city council is going to look completely different than it does now. And so that's that's what you do when government's not working for you, right? You change who's at the top of government because just saying, you know, we're going to pick up our toys and go someplace else, that's not that's not what we do. We shouldn't be a state that's in the business of breaking up cities. It's really bizarre because the people who are seem to be the biggest advocates for this are like not even living in Buckhead. It's it's a bunch of state senators or lawmakers that are coming in from other parts of town. The organizer is 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 just taking pictures with Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, it's really, really bizarre, the whole thing is. Well, it's taken a little bit of a turn of late where the folks that were leading it tried to act like it wasn't partisan, it wasn't political, but that's really kind of gone off the rails now. And you had Marjorie Taylor Greene tweet something ugly out, you know, attacking the AJC um, and, and talking about how she supported the Buckhead uh, city movement, and she had a picture with with Bill White, the the kind of the face, the person behind all of this. And it was kind of at that moment that you're like, okay. Well, and especially after we learned that he was a big stop the steal guy and January sixth guy, and you add that in with a photo with Marjorie Taylor Greene, so it's like, uh, you know, it just it, it, well, and, and a huge Trump guy, yeah. like clearly has very very close ties to the former president and, and the people around him. So when you kind of take that all into account, all of a sudden it starts to feel like something different and not just this, you know, grassroots movement of, of people who live in a neighborhood who are just kind of fed up. There seems to be something more sinister kind of behind it, at yeah. least for maybe some of the folks that were pushing it. Well, and what it looks like as far as what I'm reading and how it looks to me, it's not a great look. Anyway, well, we'll have to see how that shakes out, unless there's anything else you wanted to add to that. No, I just think that it's one of these things where, I mean, you know, look, our state is dealing with some serious issues right now. Our communities are dealing with serious issues. We need to all just sit down and start talking about the issues, the problems, and how we're going to fix them. And this really is just... It's just a distraction from all of that. So instead of focusing on the election and, and, and trying to figure out who the new leadership of this city should be, you do. You have folks that are kind of focused on this Buckhead City thing, having press conferences, going to fundraisers where you have to pay 25000 all this kind of stuff. Whereas if they would just take that energy, you know, and and put it into actually making the city of Atlanta better or the city of Atlanta work for all of its citizens we'd be in a much better place. I couldn't have said that better. That's absolutely right. It's moving on. I want us to pivot to uh, school boards and school board meetings, because this seems to be a very big issue and story. As far as uh, you read in Gwinnett County, some of the school board members like have are being harassed by parents. It's very, very scary. Well, and the Department of Justice announced that you know, they were paying attention to all of the threats and attacks that were being leveled at school board members, and in particular school board members who had um, put into place procedures surrounding COVID, right, to keep staff protected, teachers protected, students protected. So, you know, we, and we've seen that play out in the media, right? But what's interesting is that we're kind of seeing the mirror image of that in Cobb County, where we have school board members who are actually 
doing the opposite, where they're just spreading misinformation about COVID and COVID vaccinations. It's truly chilling to see school board members putting out anti-vaccine uh, propaganda on uh, with their emails, part of the school board. This is crazy. And then Nicole Carr, who used to work for Channel 2, now she's with ProPublica. And she did a fantastic story. Just about what it was like being a parent in the early months of Delta variant, how scary it was with back to school. And she took her kids out of school because she had some immunocompromised children that she wrote an article about that, too. But I wanted to play this call about an exchange between the school board member and a parent. Something happens where we get an influx of, uh, uh, you know, undocumented uh, migrants, to be politically correct. They're still illegal aliens as far as this old guy's concerned. Randy, I don't understand what you're telling me. What are you speaking about? Why are we speaking about immigration suddenly? Anything can make the numbers spike that we don't anticipate. If we get... Hold on a minute. ...illegal immigrants with COVID positive, which they're coming in over the border, you know, daily by the hundreds. Randy, that's incorrect. I'm sorry. I can't let, you, I can't let that go. That's completely incorrect. <laughs> you listen to too much NPR now. <laughs> Come on now. Hey, I love it. I love hearing you. I really do. Well, that's completely spurious information, and it's actually really appalling. Yeah. I mean, you know, even apart from the content of that, kind of the the disdain, the in in the in the chair's voice, you know, when he's talking to the mother and kind of putting her down and um you know, well, that is Randy Scamahorn. That's his name. And he is the board chair. And he is talking to a mother like that. Not only, uh, I, and I got to give her credit for keeping her composure through it because I don't know how I would have reacted to that. And I really give credit to these parents who are trying to rationalize with people who are not rational. What's sad is that we've seen, obviously, the COVID rates go through the roof in in terms of Cobb County in particular with respect to children. And you see these board members who just absolutely refuse to acknowledge it. And not only the board members, but the superintendent over there as well. And that's not Cobb County. Cobb County is this diverse, vibrant, so many people moved to Cobb County because of the school system and how great it was and award-winning, all of this. And then you hear something like that. I mean, that's just, that's just kind of, that's chilling. It really is, especially a diss at NPR and like that made national news. And it's just like, you know, it's, it's just, you know, and they're talking about immigration, which is also crazy because you now see our governor, uh, Governor Kemp doing a stunt at, at the border for, for whatever reason with all these other Governors, it's just, it's, it's, you know, I'm curious to know, Jen, you know, there's a lot of talk about how Biden's approval ratings are not great and that people are frustrated. And, you know, so are they seizing in on an opportunity? And and do you think it's, it, it will land? Look, I think they are. I think they're looking at polling. They're looking at where people are unhappy. And we have an immigration problem, but we've had an immigration problem for a really long time. 
And it has continued under Democratic presidents. It's continued under Republican presidents. And COVID certainly hasn't made it any better. And so, yeah, there, there's probably a lot to point to in terms of the Biden administration, in terms of their handling of some of the things since he came into office. But it's nothing new in terms of we've got this problem and then we have a Congress that just absolutely refuses to really do anything about it or, or, or take it, you know, substantively sit down and try to really fix the problem. Well, it seems like nobody can get along. Nobody can come to an agreement. Well, they would rather use it as a political football. Right. right. They would rather go to the border. The governors of these various states, Idaho, Georgia, South Dakota, all those great border states. Right. <laughs> and, you know, states that have problems with COVID, have problems with the economy. There's all kinds of stuff going on in our state that, that we need focus on. I mean, crime all over Georgia. Right. All of that. And, and how are we going to spend our time? We're going to go to the border so, so we can point out that the president of the United States, you don't agree with his policy? Yeah. Well, and then you've got the Democrats, uh, you know, on the Hill who are fighting with each other and nobody see, can seem to agree. And it's, it's Democrats just, in disarray. It's really, I mean, it, uh, this Kirsten Cinema, you know, I just don't understand why she won't talk to anybody. I get if you want to have your line in the sand and, and, and do what you want to do, but she won't even talk to anybody. Like, so I don't even really understand what she stands for. Do you? I think she is so afraid of getting caught on tape or being recorded or having someone be able to use some kind of soundbite against her that she's just, she's just refusing, you know, to communicate with folks, which that's really not a good thing when you're an elected official who who that's one of your main jobs is to constantly be communicating with your constituents because they need to know what you're thinking. You need to know what they're thinking. This isn't just a one way street where you get chosen and then you're like king of the world and you get to do whatever you want to do. You know, I love looking at you know, conservative outrage on certain things that make it on social media. And there was a lot of attention paid to her, you know, people following her into the bathroom. My grandfather passed away two weeks ago and I was not able to go to Mexico and visit him because there is no pathway to citizenship. And if we have the opportunity to pass it right now, then we need to do it because there's millions of undocumented people just like me who share the same story or even worse things that happen to them because of SB 1070 and because of anti-immigrant legislation. And this is the opportunity to pass it right now. And we need you to, we need to hold you accountable to what you told us, what you promised us that you were going to pass when we knocked on doors for you. It's not right. Which, you know, like I'm not into that. Uh, no, at no, all. No. But I, I wonder they're they're not doing the same thing when like school board members are being harassed in their front lawn or like, you know, so, so or election workers. Or, right. Or what about state senators that get death threats? I mean, it, any of these things. Right. Or, or any other elected official. It feels like there's there's almost like this been this turn toward violence or violent behavior or, or that it's OK to act this way around people. And it's like, what what happened to us just having just some sense, right? And and just not yelling at folks and just trying to have a conversation. And we're going to have to have a real reset 
because this is not this is not getting us anywhere. Has anyone ever followed you into a bathroom to ask you a question or have you been in a situation where you've been, you know, aggressively questioned in maybe a public place? I have been and it's uncomfortable because one thing is you don't want when people are being aggressive with you, you don't want to be aggressive back, right? You don't ever want to turn up the volume on something, but Look, when somebody's in your face and yelling at you or or saying things about you or, you know, making you feel threatened, you have a natural response, which is to protect yourself. And so that's what's always super, super hard because it's kind of like, come on, you know, just back up. I mean, maybe it's fine. I'm from Dodge County, <laughs> but <laughs> it, it's like, you know. This isn't this isn't how we should be dealing with them. Right. So that's why I wonder, like, she could have come out smelling like a rose if she would have said, hey, OK, I will talk to you. Um, instead, I, I, Don't you think there again, I am not for the following into the bathroom. No, I think when she came out of the bathroom, I think that's fine. If they want to ask her a question, she's an elected official. These are her constituents. They have the right to ask her a question respectfully. But could she have a lesson in PR to just say, you know, say something? Look, I think some people would say that she must be doing something right because across the board in Arizona, her her marks are pretty high with independents and with Republicans, right? right? So they're like, see, so she knows her state. The problem is girlfriend's going to have to get through a primary and Acting like this and behaving in this way isn't going to help her when she goes back home. And what's really odd about her is she didn't come to the U.S. Senate as someone that was perceived as being like a mansion type, right? Right. Not as someone that was kind of right of center. Mm -hmm. That wasn't how she was. She was like a Green Party type, you know, character that came out of Congress. So it has just taken everybody by surprise because it's like, well, what does she really believe? Right. I think that's the biggest issue is what does she stand for? Anyway, well, we'll continue to watch that because that's just been crazy and it's confusing and it clashes. And it's just it's just like that's like a lot of like nerdy political football. Um, before we get to our guests, I do want to ask about the redistricting and Lucy McBath. That seems to be the biggest story coming out of like the redistricting, that it's going to be more challenging for her when she runs. What do you think? Well, look, the, the map that was released just came from the state Senate Republicans under the letterhead of the lieutenant governor. Didn't come from the House. It, it, you know, there wasn't any vetting with respect to that. My guess is that's not going to be the final map. But I will say to you that I think that that is probably going to be the tactic they take with Lucy, right? And so they've given her all of Forsyth County now. They've taken all of DeKalb County out and... It is a much more difficult district to win in for a Democrat in 22. Now, let's be clear, in 24 and 26, the way that the area is trending, a Democrat could recapture it. But but 22 would be hard if, in fact, that's the map that gets adopted. And she's going to have some stiff competition. Well, I wouldn't call it stiff competition. She'll have a Republican. How about that? <laughs> And so when you're talking about drawing a district that you've now drawn to be a plus whatever Trump district, those Trump folks are going to vote for the Republican. They're not going to vote for the Democrat. So we know that that's how, you know, Trump voters have voted historically. And so it's one of those things where it's going to be difficult in 22. It really is. It'd be difficult for anybody. But 
you know, in terms of, of actually having stiff competition, I haven't really seen seen any of that on the R. All right. All right. Well, stiff competition. What do you make of this? One of our previous guests, friend of the show, Marcus Flowers, who is running against Marjorie Taylor Greene, they announced that he's raised over a million dollars. Well, I think 1.3 for this quarter and has a million cash on hand. So, you know, he's getting people's attention because that's we've talked about this, right? Mm -hmm. That if people don't know you or you or have never heard of you, how do they kind of gauge whether or not you are a serious candidate or not? And they look at how much money you've raised and how much you've spent and how much you have on hand. And he's he's got some grain. Uh, the question is, and I saw Stephen Fowler from GPB tweet this out talking about, you know, you would say that he doesn't have a chance because it's such a red district. But are there going to be those folks who are like, I don't believe elections, the people that didn't get out to vote for Leffler or Purdue? Is that going to be the same thing in 22 where maybe something weird could happen? Look, I, I think that we should always Democrats should always be putting good people up to run because I think it helps statewide. Right. I mean, Biden only won by 11,000 votes. And that's because good people were running in districts that they knew that they didn't have a chance to win in. But there's also a question mark here with respect to what is her district going to look like? I mean, she she has made some enemies within the Republican Party. And so the question is, how are they going to draw her district? Are they going to make it less favorable for her? Not sure how they do it because of where it is. But I mean, they could. They could try to do that. So I think we need to kind of hold back a little bit, kind of see what the district looks like. But ultimately, Marcus is doing a good job. And, you know, that's all we can expect right now. Man, lot of lot of bickering, bickering with the Democrats, bickering with the Georgia Republicans. They were mad about that Trump rally because, you know, Trump gave an endorsement to Stacey Abrams, who hasn't even announced she's running. I mean, this is a real shit show, Jen. Well, it's a show. Um, I, I'll say, I'll say this much. I mean, you, you had the 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 chair of the Republican Party on stage with all of these candidates, and it did create the impression that the Republican Party had already chosen sides. And I think that that uh, really bad form across the board. And then you had Trump basically, you know, putting the the good housekeeping seal of approval on all these folks. There, there are some difficult, difficult times with the Republican Party in terms of primary politics this year. All right. Well, we're going to keep our eye on it. And while we're, uh, uh, you know, keeping focused on that, uh, we're going to get to our all-star guest. Our guest today is Ellie Honig. And we're excited for this because he's just a power lawyer. And you know how I feel about lawyers, Jen. Excited about this. That's right. <laughs> he spent 14 years as a federal and state prosecutor in New York and New Jersey. And you can see him on CNN. He's written books. He's pretty much everywhere and can weigh in on a lot of different stuff. But on his latest podcast called Up Against the Mob, he talks to FBI agents and mobsters and informants, and he really gets down and dirty. I mean, he makes terrible people seem really likable. Um, and and for that, I, I wrote about him in Pace Magazine, and I said, Jen, you got to listen to this podcast. And you actually responded to one of my texts. I know it may be the first <laughs> podcast I actually did listen to that you told me to. Ellie, welcome to the Voter Podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be with you. I'm glad you, you've both listened to it and enjoyed the podcast. And, and when you said that I have a, a way of making 
people who've done terrible things seem relatable or, or something like that. I, I absolutely took that as a compliment. I mean, look, that, that is, uh, I think that's part of what we try to do in this podcast and show people that it's not always just black and white, good guy, bad guy, right, wrong. There's all sorts of shades and ambiguity and complexity to this world. So, um, and I should add, it was something that you had to do in front of a jury. When I was trying mob cases, we would put guys like, if you listen to the first episode, Michael Visconti, a cooperating witness, he testified at two different trials for me. And you, you know, I think the thing is you don't try to present these people to a jury as angels, right? I never said to a jury, look, you know, he's decided to become a good person. It's always, you have to be straight with them. This is, this is a, a transaction, a deal. He wants to get a, as little time in jail as possible. However, his interest now is in telling the truth. And here's all the ways you can see that he is credible, but it doesn't hurt if you can make the jury kind of like him too. Yeah, no, I thought what was really interesting in terms of when I listened to it was kind of, well, and with respect to, it was it was one of the um, lawyers that was defending the mob that was on with you. Yeah, Murray Richmond. Just really fascinating, yep. fascinating character. But it was, it was, I loved it because it was two attorneys talking to each other, right? And when you've been in the courtroom yeah. with another attorney and you've really slogged it out with somebody, you know, you, you can take some hits and you can give some hits. But at the end of the day, when you see really good lawyering, it, it is hard not to take notice and, and say, well played. And so I, I really yeah. liked kind of y'all's relationship and, and how you talked about that. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, so one of the episodes is with Murray Richmond, who's a, a famous, particularly here in the New York area, uh, defense lawyer. He's in his 80s now. He's been doing this for over 50 years. He tells some, I guess I won't spoil it, but some mind-blowing stories about his days as a mob lawyer and as a, a lawyer representing hip-hop artists and uh, a night out celebrating and drinking with Frank Sinatra. But I think what you heard there, Jen, is, is really an accurate depiction of how the relationship between prosecutor and defense lawyer can be, um, I, I sort of equate it to boxers, right? You see boxers and they're in the ring and they're, they're punching each other in the face and trying to knock each other out. But when the bell dings at the end, they hug. And more often than not, they'll go out for dinner, maybe not the, that night, but you know, they're, they're friends. I mean, I think if you say to boxers, who do you hang out with? They would say mostly other boxers. And Murray and I, you know, we tried a mob boss uh, against one another. I was the prosecutor. He represented the boss in a murder case, a multiple murder case. And, um, but he and I, as you can hear in the episode, have not just a, a healthy respect for one another. That is normal, but, but also really an affection um, that, that's maybe not so normal. But Murray's, Murray's almost become a, 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 like an uncle figure to me. Uh, as I mentioned in the, in the podcast, I think I say it in the episode, my dad's name is Murray too. So uh, whenever I see Murray Richmond, I say, there's my number two Murray. How you doing? But he he is a character that, that has to be heard to be believed. Yeah, that is a great episode, especially because you're like the young gun coming in and he's like, <laughs> you know, he's been at it for a really long time. And uh, it is definitely impressive to hear how he just he praised your work and um, everything that you, you did as you worked together on different things. I want to get into some of the stuff that you've been talking about a lot when you are on CNN. It seems like I really feel like there's a need for a legal expert's literally like nonstop in the culture that we're living in right now. And since we are a Georgia politics podcast, I'm curious to know your thoughts on in the news as far as 
President Trump uh, had a rally in Perry, Georgia, recently talking about election fraud and different things um, that made a lot of headlines. And some people are saying that, you know, he could get himself in trouble for what he said. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, it's such an interesting issue. So first of all, you're right when it comes to the need for legal analysts. I started with CNN almost exactly three years ago right now, and we were in the heart of the Mueller investigation. And I remember people who've been doing this for a long time, longer than I had, said to me, you know, once this investigation's over, it's going to be a different world for legal analysts and they're not going to need us as much. Not true at all <laughs> in my in my experience. I mean, the, the demand and the need for, for legal explanations has kept up uh, full force. And, and I'm, I'm, I really am grateful that I have the chance to explain these things. So Georgia, one of the big questions is, will Donald Trump or anybody ever face any real consequences for trying to steal the election? Um, and Georgia is sort of where the most concentrated effort was, right? We have, I think, the best factual record of what went down in Georgia. We know Lindsey Graham called down there to Brad Raffensperger, tried to sort of push him a little bit. We've heard, we've all heard the call Trump made to Brad Raffensperger, your secretary of state, your Republican secretary of state there in Georgia. I need you to find 11,780 votes. That was Trump's word, find them. We know Trump even called the investigator with the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. I mean, that is a, an insane call that he makes. And now, you know, Trump seems to be his Defense has always been to stay on the offense, to never apologize, to double down every time he, he, he can, as he just did in that rally recently. And so who could take action here? There's really two possibles um, when it comes to uh, criminal consequences against Trump for trying to steal the election. One is the United States Department of Justice. I've seen no indication whatsoever from Merrick Garland that he has any interest, appetite for taking on Donald Trump. Um, I, if, if you're, if you're waiting for Merrick Garland to bring federal charges against Donald Trump, don't hold your breath. Um, that said, I've argued in pieces I've written and on air for CNN that there absolutely are federal and Georgia state crimes, um, applicable to what Trump did, or at least to what we know that he did. So then the, the second body that you have to look at here is the Fulton County DA, Fannie Willis, who has publicly announced that she's investigating. And there are definitely Georgia crimes, state crimes that could apply here too. Um, she's going to have a very difficult decision to make. Um, you know, these laws are not used often. There's not a whole body of well-developed law. The defense will be, well, Trump actually thought he won. And if you think you win, you're allowed to petition government. Um, that said, I think if I was prosecuting this case, I would argue, first of all, you're not allowed to believe a myth that you made up. Second of all, his own words show he doesn't really believe it. I mean, you don't, you don't tell Brad Raffensperger to find votes if you really believe you won. You don't tell the Justice Department, just say there was fraud in Georgia and I'll do the rest. Um, but look, you know, I guess it's easy to say, charge him, charge him, charge him. But someone in Fonnie Willis's position is thinking about how is this going to, if I do charge him, what happens next? I mean, we're going to have a trial, state of Georgia versus Donald Trump. And you know, you're going to have a jury of 12 normal people. You need to convince them all beyond a reasonable doubt. And if I charge him, and walk out of this with anything less than a conviction, it's disastrous. It's disastrous for Fonnie Willis politically. It's disastrous for uh, uh, politically way beyond Fonnie Willis. So it's a really, you know, it's easy for us pundits to say charge, 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 indict, indict, indict. But these prosecutors are sitting there looking at the world um, in a more, you know, in a political way. And and I think in a a rationally self-interested way as well. Well, and also at the end of the day, you want to, get a jury to say, yep. you know, that he's guilty. You want you want them to find yeah. against him. And and the problem is, and I, I've been talking 
you know, it's like the evidence is there. Absolutely. I'm completely with you. Yep. And, and, and Willis has brought in, you know, one of the foremost experts on RICO, especially in, in Georgia, a gentleman named John Floyd. Yep. And working with her to try to kind of build this case. And I have no doubt that John could put it together. The problem is the jury. And in Georgia, you have to have a unanimous verdict um, in criminal and civil, but definitely in, in, in criminal. And the way we are so divided now as a country, yeah. as a state, I cannot imagine any prosecutor skilled enough to be able to get 12 people to agree on that. It's a great point, and I guarantee you it's something that any prosecutor, even in Manhattan, is thinking about. Because if you just do the math here, 12 jurors and a criminal juror, you need to get unanimity, right? I've had, I've had, and a lot of us prosecutors have had the agonizing experience where you have 12 jurors and 11 of them are with you beyond a reasonable doubt, but one is a holdout, either for rational reasons or irrational reasons or whatever. That's not a conviction. That's a hung jury. That means it's a mistrial. You can retry the person, but that's a, 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 a nightmare. So you've got 12 jurors. This will be, I mean, inevitably, politics will enter heavily into this. And if you, if you do the math, let's say Georgia, which was essentially 50-50. I mean, Biden won by, a, by 11,000 votes, but that's, that's, let's say, 51-49. I mean, you are guaranteed to have three, four, five, six jurors out of 12 who voted for Donald Trump. And even in Manhattan, where it was something like 80-20 or 85-15, mathematically, you are very likely to have one or two Trump voting jurors. So, you know, jurors are supposed to put aside all their outside beliefs and politics and decide, you know, they'll be told by the judge, decide only on what you hear in the four walls of this courtroom. But again, I'm a realist. Jurors don't, <laughs> we're human beings. You can't really do that. I wish they would, but they don't in a lot of cases. So yeah, I mean, you have to consider the difficulty of getting a conviction. And then do I want to be in a position if I'm Bonnie Willis, where I bring a charge where I indict the former president and then can't convict him. And then a jury acquits him or hangs and where does that leave Bonnie Willis? And more than where does it leave Bonnie Willis, just where does it leave our country? Where does it leave faith in our institutions? So it, it, these are very, very weighty decisions. And that's what I wanted to pick up on, because really there is something bigger even than, you know, uh, politically for Willis, who's, you know, brand new district attorney here. Yep. And, and obviously yep. city of Atlanta, Fulton County's dealing with some pretty difficult issue in terms of crime right now. You know, she's got her hands full, all that stuff. Yep. Right. But really it is about faith in institutions too, because if we've got yeah. this great evidence, right, we all see it, we all yeah. hear it, it's like slam dunk, and then we have a jury that isn't willing to convict. I mean, the damage that that does to our institutions, I mean, just on kind of a different level, I think is something that anybody who's prosecuting this case has got to take into account. I, I totally agree with that. And if you take it out one, one more level, I think a prosecutor is looking, has to look at this case and think, on the one hand, how can I not, right? If the evidence is there, how can I not? Um, you know, how can I not bring the indictment? But you have to think next step, where does this case go? And, and this has sort of been my criticism of Merrick Garland. I've not seen any indication. It's possible that he's investigating this in a way that's super quiet and there's no leaks and there's no media and there's no subpoenas and there's no witnesses out there that we know of. It's possible he's investigating, but I've seen no public indication that he is where ordinarily you would see some. And my objection to that is how do you not at least give this a serious investigation and sit down at a table and say, let's look at all the evidence and let's make a real decision. And I go back to even the obstruction of justice on the Mueller investigation. I include the attempt to steal the election. I include January 6th in that. And 
Merrick Garland, I think, owes it. I, I don't know how he can justify it ultimately if he never even opens and, and conducts a meaningful investigation because people ask all the time, how could he get away with this? How can Trump, how can Trump have essentially no consequence to all the things he's done? Yes, he got impeached twice. He was acquitted twice. Yes, he's been sued by a bunch of people. Those cases are still winding through the courts, but he's not paid anyone anything recently connected to any of these lawsuits. I think he will have to eventually. And criminally, he has just sort of skated between the raindrops. I think I missed Nick's metaphors there, but he has, you know, walked between the raindrops somehow. So um, these, these are these are the decisions the prosecutors are going to be wrestling with. What about in the Southern District of New York? You know, you so yep. many people thought that for Trump, that was the smoking gun, right? That we're all waiting for Cy Vance and something for something big to happen in the Trump organization. And it just seems like there's been some Weisselberg stuff and we hear little things, rumblings. Is is are, are we are we waiting for something or again, is it going to be another thing where it's just like like you just said, it's just like, oh, well, that happened. So a uh, small correction, if I can, the Southern District of New York, that's federal. That's part of the Justice Department. That's where I used to work. The Manhattan DA, that's the, the state level prosecutor. That's who's doing the Trump or Weisselberg investigation. By mistake. No, no. And people, my mom still is like, were, were you a U.S. district, <laughs> federal, southern? Um, so I get it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think people who were expecting the Manhattan DA to, to take out Trump um, the indications that we've seen from the indictments they've brought so far that they are not there and they are not particularly close to there. It seems clear to me what they're trying to do is flip Alan Weisselberg. And it also, from all public indications, he's not flipping. Um, you know, I have some, I have a lot of objections to the way that the Manhattan DA and the New York attorney general have conducted their investigation, starting with the fact that the AG ran for office a few years ago on a premise of vote for me and I'll nail Trump. And she said that uh, many times over, you know, essentially, um, I think that I object to that from any prosecutor who's running for office. I don't care what party you are. And if you're not okay, if you are okay with that, then you also have to be okay with someone running for attorney general of Delaware next year when that position's open on a campaign premise of vote for me and I'll nail the Bidens. If you're not okay with that, then you shouldn't be okay with Letitia James doing what she did. Let's start with that. They've leaked to the media. They've made public statements. They've made all sorts of bravado gestures. And then they bring their indictment out and it's like, what is, I mean, okay, it's a tax fraud scheme against Alan Weisselberg. It's a million dollars or something over 15 years. It's very small potatoes as state law crimes go in New York. Even if he gets convicted, he's likely to avoid prison. And then they throw in the indictment of the Trump org, which is largely window dressing just to, I think, to, to dress it up a little bit, because I think they're realizing they don't have the goods on Trump. Now people say, of course, Trump was involved in fraud there. But, but the thing is, as a prosecutor, you have to be able to prove it. And you can't stand up in front of a jury or a grand jury and say, come on, folks, we all know he's the boss. He had to know. You have to prove it. And how are they going to prove it? The guy doesn't the guy doesn't text or email. You're not going to have that. No indication they ever wiretapped him or have an incriminating recording relating to the Trump org. He's you know, there's no known cooperator who's going to be able to say, yes, I sat with Donald Trump and he told me to inflate the value of this, or he told me to structure it this way so we could defeat taxes. If they flip Weisselberg, you may have that. And so where are you left? You know, I guarantee you he's got papers, paper in the file where some lawyer or some accountant blessed what happened. That happens sometimes. Lawyers will say, yes, you can structure it this way. That's actually can be a defense. So this is a tougher nut to crack than just saying Trump org equals bad, Trump himself equals boss of Trump org, hence Trump indicted. It, it's much more complicated than that. Well, and with respect to how the Trump organization 
kind of operated and specifically with respect to the president. I mean, that's what's always been interesting to me as a lawyer is to listen to his speech in terms of what he says and how it is so equivocal, you know, and he'll say things like, well, people have said or or maybe this happened or maybe somebody could do this. And so he always says stuff in a way that could never be taken as a direct you know, you will do this or do this because I've ordered you to do it. And I always thought, man, 100%. man, that is that is how he's been able just to completely stay, you know, under the line. He has mastered that art. And, and to bring it kind of full circle here, it actually reminds me in some ways of the way that smart mobsters talk. Exactly. They don't say, <laughs> right. They don't say, hey, I heard you got a subpoena. I need you to go in there and lie. All they got to do is go. You got a subpoena, huh? All right. You know, and people know what's got to happen. I mean, Michael, to me, the perfect example of this is Michael Cohen. And if you remember, one of the things Michael Cohen pled guilty to is lying to Congress. He went in front of Congress and he said that all our, we were trying to build this Trump Tower Moscow. Remember this? And Cohen said, it, our, our efforts to build that tower ended in January of, of 2017 because they were trying to make it earlier before the, or 2016, excuse me. Um, but in reality, it went on for six more months or so. And Michael Cohen, and, you know, Michael Cohen obviously has his issues, and I don't believe everything he says at face value, but Michael Cohen, I think, is very credible on this count. He says, did Donald ever tell me, hey, Michael, when you go in front of Congress, I need you to lie about Trump Tower Moscow? No. However, I heard Donald himself lying to the public about it. Trump called me, Michael Cohen, into his office and said, so, you know, you're going to go in there and talk about the tower? Okay, all right, you know, good, good, you know, let's, let's tell them what happened, you know, this kind of thing. And then Trump's lawyers met with Cohen and sort of carefully reviewed his, his testimony. So, you know, the message couldn't have been clearer, but did Trump ever say, hey, I need you to lie? No, he knows how to go right up to that line or throw in that little bit, even, even with January 6th, right? When you look at Trump's statements while January 6th is happening and afterwards, it's all praise for you, the patriots, remember this day forever, I love you. But he drops in there once in a while, I need you to go home, or I need you to, I need you to stay peaceful. So he always knows how to build himself in a little bit of a safety hatch or a yeah, but kind of kind of escape route. What about January 6th? Now subpoenas are being doled out and they're saying I'm not going to show up or they're being advised to to not show up. What does that mean? What are they going to do with that? Because it's really frustrating to to see that as are they going to be able to just get away with ignoring those subpoenas? Uh, Prepare for more frustration, I think. Um, Look, Congress essentially has three options in this scenario. The first one is this what's called inherent contempt power, which is this old timey thing where Congress would send out the sergeant at arms and he'd arrest people and throw them in a jail near Capitol Hill. Um, That's gone. It hasn't happened since 1935. And let's be real, they're not sending out the sergeant at arms to start arresting Steve Bannon. I mean, we're just not going to see that. Um, the second option is to go That'd to the That'd be court. awesome to see that, though. Yeah. It'd be great TV. I mean, <laughs> it, would be, it would be compelling. I'll say that. I wonder where they'd hold them. You know, what jail would they use, right? There's, um, there's actually, if you ever want to go on a deep dive, like people have tried to identify like where in the, in the Capitol Hill building, the Capitol building was the prison. And there's like, there's this theory that it's this one room that looks like a prison, but it was actually like a library. I, you know, there, there, there's, there, someone should do like a Tom Hanks movie about this or something. Um, the second one is they can go to the courts and say to a judge, we want you to order this person to testify. And if he doesn't, he can be penalized civilly or criminally. 
problem there is that takes forever. I mean, we saw Don McGahn, the, the subpoena mis- dispute took two years. They don't have that kind of time here. Um, now, look, courts can and should do a better job. Courts, courts should hear the, I don't know why the courts in the McGahn dispute, for example, hear that thing right away. Put it to the top of your pile. Set a hearing for next week. Our courts need to do better. I know no one ever questions our federal judges, but I will. We're allowed to. Um, and then the third option, which is really interesting, is potential potential criminal charges. And the way that would work is Congress would have to hold these people in contempt when they defy a subpoena, send it over to DOJ, but then it's up to DOJ to decide, are we going to charge criminally? Now, there is a federal crime for contempt of Congress. It's a misdemeanor. It's a weird misdemeanor. So misdemeanor means it's a maximum of one year. This misdemeanor is the only time I've ever seen this. Jen, tell me if you've ever seen anything like this as a lawyer or mayor. It has a one year, excuse me, a one month mandatory minimum. I've never heard of a misdemeanor with a minimum one month. Usually misdemeanors, nobody goes to prison. Um, But the problem for Merrick Garland is, well, you think, is he going to charge it? Well, how could he not? Um, on the other hand, the last several times this has happened over the past several decades, DOJ has declined to prosecute. And we're right back to what we were discussing before of Merrick Garland. Now he's, he's, he's going to try Steve Bannon and Cash Patel and Dan Scavino for contempt of Congress. And it becomes a political show. And, and I've not seen any indication that Merrick Garland has any interest or appetite for that. So um, Congress is going to be, you know, they better be ready to fight here. And, and, and there's no clear path. Well, and there are some some interesting or complicating issues with respect to executive privilege, too. I mean, you know, purportedly Trump is asserting it, but the Biden White House isn't. And and so I think that complicates things a little bit, although I do think that it's it's a little bit of a joke to say that that you can you can say it's executive privilege when you're talking about not certifying the election results. But, you know, right. I mean, I agree. Executive privilege. A, it's almost it's pretty clearly we don't have a definitive answer, but it's up to the current president, not the past president. Um, that that's the precedent that we've seen. Um, so start with that. Um, I don't think it's going to apply here. It's not meant to shield wrongdoing, but but really the goal for the Trump folks is, is delay more than anything else. Absolutely. I, you know, uh, if they can drag this out another year before a court rules, and then you know, I mean. It, this thing is going to be, look, Congress doesn't have that much time. We're nine months out from January 6th. This Congress is only seated for another year and change. Could could well flip to Republican um, in, in 2022. That's been the history. Pres- every president, um, except for George W. Bush, which was still sort of in the 9-11 aftermath, but um, every recent president has taken a bath in their first term congressional midterms. Um, Trump lost seats, lost the majority. Clinton and Obama lost over 50 seats each. And right now, Democrats have a, a 10 seat majority so or, or less than that. So, um, you know, they're on the clock here. And, and the strategy from from Trump's people seems to be delay. Well, they get away with it all the time. It seems like it. they want to just nothing to see here. <laughs> well, yep. well yep. your podcast up against the mob is so great. We love seeing you on CNN. How did you get the uh, job at CNN? How did they find you? Ha, that is, that's a funny, uh, a funny question. This was never part of my plan. I was a prosecutor for 14 years, federal and state. I was getting ready to leave. Um, and I did not want to go the big law firm route. Um, and a friend of mine, Mimi Roca, who, uh, was a supervisor of mine at the SDNY was doing MSNBC and, and CNN at the time. I think she had just maybe signed with MSNBC. And she said, Hey, when you're done in a couple of weeks, you know, this is right in the heart of the Mueller investigation. Uh, I know these producers, they're looking for former federal prosecutors. Would you want to do this? And I thought, yeah, that'd be fun. I'll go on TV. That'd be cool. 
And um, Mimi, by the way, now has been elected the Westchester County here in, in New York State DA. I mean, it's a remarkable grad. If you want to be inspired by a grassroots story, Mimi actually, not to get too far on a tangent, challenged a, a an old guy who was a Democratic incumbent. She primaried him and beat him like 68 to 32 or something. And now she's the DA. Uh, so obviously, I'm very proud of her. But anyway, Mimi, blame Mimi for me. Um, she gave my name over to one producer at CNN, one producer at MSNBC, and I all summer was running between the two, and then um, and then uh, signed on with CNN, and I've been there for three years, and it's it's uh, it's just it's wonderful, and I'm I'm grateful to be part of it. Great, they put a ring on it. I never thought of it that way. (laughs) Well, they want to lock you down. It's exclusive. Uh, I know you don't have a lot of time, but there's just so many things to analyze with lawyers between election law and what's going on in Texas with this horrible abortion law. I mean, there's just there's just so much to cover. And, you know, and of course, you know, when Jen is going to be the attorney general of 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 Georgia, you're going to want to ask her all the (laughs) questions, too. Yeah, yeah. Jen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll come sit down with you when you're AG. We'll do, we'll do an on-camera interview. How about that? Happy to do it. All right, good. Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, but wait, I know we got to go. How are you feeling about Braves tonight? Was Braves against who? Uh, not LA. Who are they playing in the playoffs? Baseball. Uh, come on. How how are we feeling about the Braves? Well, you know, it's a very sensitive. Oh, thing. Braves Brewers. Braves, Braves Brewers. Brewers. There you go. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. you know, we, we've talked about the Braves on this podcast. And when we talk about them, it was, you know, there was a lot of all-star game uh, hype. Uh, oh, remember yeah, right. that? Sure, uh, sure. Yeah, we're all feeling a little, <laughs> a little bruised and battered <laughs> yes. from all that. But no, the Braves yeah. fans, people are very, very passionate and they're very, very excited. And uh, Jen is the state senator for that, where the Truist Park oh. is. So, you know, she awesome. is all about- <laughs> Bravos. All the way, man. Well, listen, I'm a Phillies fan. I grew up outside of Philadelphia in South Jersey. Um, that said, I've always liked the Braves, A, because they were on TBS when I was a kid, right? The only, you know, kids now have any game they want at their disposal, but the only non-Phillies games I could see was the Braves with Dale Murphy and Bob Horner and those guys. And, uh, so, you know, I watched that and then they're just likable. They're just, even now they're supposed to be the Phillies rivals, but you know, they lose the Acuna, right? Who's their, their superstar. And they, they don't skip a beat. They just, you know, made the playoffs anyway. So I'll be rooting for the Braves for you guys. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's, I, you hear that from so many people, people who grew up watching the, you know, TBS superstation and that was just it, you know? So it's like, that was the only thing that was on, you know, TBS, God bless Ted Turner, you know, I mean, that was, uh, uh, started it all right and now we have exactly. the Braves. yes yep. and you're on cnn yep. well, and you're that. on cnn that's <laughs> right do you get do you ever get to atlanta do they want i mean obviously it's been covid so you haven't been here no i do want to come down there because a lot of our staff uh work down there a lot of people who i've emailed ten thousand times with i've never met in person because they're atlanta based so um i am going to try to go down there at some point soon i think it'd be really fun to to, to visit the, the shop down there okay, well, let great. us know we'll take you to a Braves. yeah game. we'll take you to a braves awesome. game and we'll remind you don't right. say hot lana because th- nobody yeah. says oh, that i would never say that i would know <laughs> don't worry that's the biggest sin <laughs> yes so. well congratulations it's like, it's like saying frisco or something yeah. yes yeah, congratulations yeah. on your success the podcast is thanks, great guys. the books are great we love watching you on tv thanks so much ellie thank you i appreciate it great to talk to you both Well, that was fun. Man, I can see why CNN put a ring on it, as you said. <laughs> I mean, it is it is hard to explain really complex legal issues 
And he's really good at it. Yeah, he's really, really good. Um, I love that podcast, Up Against the Mob. You know, of course, I. you know, did you watch The Sopranos? Oh, I am in the middle of it right now. Oh, you never watched it? No. So me and uh, my husband are like, we started from the beginning. So every night we're watching The Sopranos. <laughs> I love that. It's so good. But you know, what's what's interesting is when he was talking about how you know, you were talking about he makes bad people seem okay or yeah, likable, yeah. right? But that's kind of the whole point of The Sopranos is to show this other kind of human element of these really bad guys. Like he's going to therapy, he has anxiety attacks, you know, all of this stuff, right? That really does humanize him. So that's what I was thinking about when he said that. My understanding from Dr. Cusimano, your family physician, is that you collapsed, possibly a panic attack. You were unable to breathe. They said it was a panic attack because all the uh, blood work and the neurological work came back negative. And they sent me here. You don't agree that you had a panic attack? <sighs> How are you feeling now? Good. Fine. Back at work. What line of work are you in? Waste management consultant. Well, yeah, because people are very, very layered. So it's just like, you know, and I know there's a movie out now, which is sort of Tony Soprano. Right, as, the prequel. As, yes. The prequel. Um, but, you know, they're human beings and that's a lot to live with. And, and you know, you just, you, you aren't born inherently bad. And sometimes you have to do bad things to, you know, keep up with the family. But, you know, The Sopranos does do a really good job of that. I mean, uh, Carmela is, is, is the best character on that show, I think. She's fascinating to me like all of them are are really really interesting and it's totally different from like the dixie mafia i mean that's something that people don't really talk about there's a great podcast which i recommend i think i'm always recommending a podcast or some sort of crazy docuseries on the law to jen and there's in the red clay which is about the dixie mafia yeah and there's all kinds of stories like that's not you know yeah, there's there's a lot about bodies showing up in the Oak Mogi and, you know, uh, moonshine. There's, there's 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 many, many stories. Barbiturates. Lots of drugs. <laughs> You're right. Drugs usually play a role. Yeah. So but when, you know, people are like Dixie Mafia, what? But like in the Deep South, a lot of that stuff goes on. I mean, and that's something we'll, you know, we'll have to talk about talking about lawyers, uh, the Murdoch murders in uh, Hampton County, South Carolina. Which, yeah, that's so much to unpack. We're going to have to we're going to have to wait another day. We're going to have to wait for another podcast to hear more about that, because as a lawyer, I mean, you must be that, that your eyes must be popping out as a lawyer as a true crime <laughs> aficionado what are you talking about i'm like oh my god there's one more layer to this this is crazy yeah it keeps getting crazier well listen we want to um remind everybody to go to jen the number four ga.com if you haven't gone there if you have any money at all <laughs> and you would like to give it to jen listen we need you more than ever. Bingo Listen, good. Mara is way better at asking for money than I am. So. Oh, 
you know. Listen, I work. How many years did I work for NPR? All we do is like we're begging. We're like, please, do you love the good programming that you're hearing? If you don't give us money, you know what's going to happen to Big Bird? We're going to sleep in the ditch. <laughs> yes. So listen, we need Jen right now for Attorney General, so we can get rid of all these ridiculous shenanigans. Jen will not go to the border of Texas. I, I can promise you that. <laughs> She's going to stay right here where the issues hit close to home. Thanks, Christina Lauringer, for always uh, editing and being such a great producer. And um, anything else you want to add, Jen, any announcements? No announcements. Okay, great. We'll talk to you next time.